Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 17, and then we'll look in verse 21 as well. If you would go ahead and stand together as we read God's word. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Rome and to the church in Azel as well as he says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Father, how powerful these words are, short and to the point. If only we can use this wisdom and this statement, this verse, these two verses, to dictate all of our relationships, how much better our relationships will be, and therefore how much better our lives will be. Help us this morning to do that very thing. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning's message is entitled, Replacing Toxic Behaviors with Healthy Behaviors. Last week, I preached a sermon I entitled, How to Reset Your Relationships. And so I cleverly titled today, uh, today's message, How to Relace, Reset Your Relationships, Part 2. And uh, Replacing Toxic Behaviors with Healthy Behaviors. If you weren't here last week, we looked at the, 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 the challenge that we have in our relationships. And my desire, and I think that God's desire for you and me as much as we can is to restore our relationships, have healthy relationships. And sometimes to salvage a relationship, we need to reset that relationship. And it may be a marriage, it may be with our parents or our children or a relationship, a friendship that we've had for a very long time. It may be somebody that we're not talking to. Somebody shared with me on the way out after the early service that there's, they're challenged with a, a sibling relationship. They have not spoken to their sibling in many, many years, decades, in fact, and that they're, they're, they're most interested in reconciling that relationship. Life is relationship. Everything is relationships. Those things that matter most to us in life are relationships. And so we want to look at God's word this morning about relationships. And so I said last week, as best we can, there comes a time in a relationship where you'd want to just reset that relationship. All the water that's under the bridge, all the bad thing that's ever happened, all the, the toxic things that's ever been said, you want to, in, in, a, in a moment with that person, just verbally make it clear to them and let them make it clear to you, you this agreement. We are going to reset this relationship. Bygones will be good. Bygones, we're going to start fresh today and now. Sometimes you need to do that. But this morning, I wanted to move forward and look at replacing toxic behaviors with healthy behaviors. That is, in resetting your relationship, it's going to go right back to where it was unless you do something different. Does that not make sense? Yeah. If you, it doesn't matter where you work and what relationship with you, you have with your boss. If you're treating your old boss or treated your old boss with an, a certain animosity, and you take that to the new job, your relationship with your new boss is not gonna be any better. If you have an old marriage that was toxic and now you're remarried, it's not gonna be any better if you have the same toxic behaviors as the old relationship. So you want to replace toxic behaviors with healthy behaviors. Did you know that on average, couples have about 182 arguments per year? 
Now, some of you are thinking, wow, that's way more than I have. Others are thinking, wow, just 182? <laughs> Um, and each dispute, on average, lasts about 25 minutes. And again, you may be saying, wow, for one reason or another. That's a total of three solid days in arguments. The top reasons for arguments, in fact, I found a, a, a big diversity of about what the most arguments are about, depending on what study you look at. But some of the top reasons for arguments include our chores, not listening, and a lack of romance. 66% of people say regular arguments help to clear the air. And your disagreements can help to clear the air. You're going to have conflict. Jesus had conflict all the time with the disciples, with the Pharisees, and with others. It's how he dealt with that conflict that makes all the difference in the world. Adults and children are at an increased risk of mental and physical problems due to marital distress that goes unresolved. A variety of studies suggest that the seeds of marital distress and divorce are there for many couples when they say, I do. It's not something that happens later on, and I hear from time to time people say to me, well, that's just not the person I married. He's not the guy I married. She's not the girl that I married. And of course, most of the time, they're exactly the person that you married, unless it was Bruce Jenner. Um, there's a big change there. But chances are the person that you married was the person that you married when, they, when you married them and they haven't changed a whole lot. Your spouse is exactly the person that you married. You just didn't know them well enough. Many more couples lived together prior to marriage than in the past. In fact, it's at a historic high. Recent estimates are over 60%. And these couples statistically are less likely to stay married, probably mostly due to the fact that they're less conservative about marriage in the first place and about divorce. Money is one of the things that people say they argue about most in marriage, followed by children. But, and I've learned as a parent they're, they're related, <laughs> money and children. But there is a lot of reason to believe that what couples argue about is not as important as how they argue or how you argue. How do you argue? How do you have a disagreement? How do you have a conflict? What is your tone? What is your volume? And your relationships may be filled with toxic behaviors, whether you realize it or not. So today, I want to give some biblical alternatives to that toxic element in your relationships. I believe God does not merely want you to remove the unhealthy and the destructive habits, but he wants you to replace them with better things. In fact, that's what his word says, and we'll see this in more than one passage. He wants you to replace those toxic things with wonderful things that will make your relationship and your marriage stronger and happier. When I was in a freshman in college, I took college algebra, an old story, I'm sure you may remember it before, I took it at 7.30 in the morning. Now, I already knew that God was calling me to be a pastor, and I had no use for algebra whatsoever, and I was right. I have not used it since that very day or that very semester, and I, I don't know why I took it at 7.30. I, I didn't realize there were 7.30 classes. I, I worked 
as well, worked my way through college, and maybe I had to go to work later. I don't know what my thinking was, but I wasn't thinking very clearly because to an 18-year-old boy, 7.30 is like 3.30. It's extraordinarily early. And it was a reminder to me every morning when the alarm went off that I didn't care about algebra. And so sometimes I just didn't make it. Now, the only thing I had in common with my professor, other than the fact that we unfortunately had both, both had red hair, is that I disliked algebra as much as he disliked college students. <laughs> I don't know what his dream for was, was in life, but it wasn't to teach college students. If it was, he'd lost that loving feeling and he was, he was tired of teaching and he didn't care if I passed or not. So I didn't. I managed to fail my first class, made a big fat F in college algebra. And I ended up taking that class. So it just killed my GPA, by the way. Don't fail classes if you can prevent it. But the next year, I went to a different university, took the class again, different professor, different time of day, and it made all the difference. The professor cared about me and was interested in me doing well in algebra. And so I made a much better grade. And here's what happened. Not only did my GPA improve because I made a, a higher grade in that class, so I got to add a good grade. But if you, if you fail a class, and I'm not recommending this you, this is not a strategy for you, but if you fail a class and then retake that class in another semester, it wipes out the, the F that you made the first time. It's gone. So you get double uh, benefit from that good grade. That's exactly what God is telling you and I this morning. We're going to see this to do in our relationships, to, to remove or stop those toxic behaviors and replace them with healthy behaviors. The first way you can do that, as much as you can, replace conflict with peace. Replace conflict with peace. Not a day goes by that I'm not tempted to respond to something that I see or read on, in social media. And those of you who have known me for many years, uh, you, you, can, you, you can attest to this. If you're my friend on Facebook, for example, you've never heard me get into it with anybody online. I just won't do it. Even if they bait me into the conversation, sometimes they try to do that, won't do it. I will not reply. If they, if they attack me, my family, I won't respond if they attack the church or even Christianity. I've got some friends on Facebook that are atheists. I will not get into an argument with them. First of all, it's not a theological forum. It's a social forum. And secondly, it isn't biblical. Now, Jesus had conflict, and sometimes he did respond, but he didn't respond on social media. The Bible tells us, and we're going to see this, the way to respond to conflict is not in front of 500 friends that you have on social media. It is just you and that person. And if that doesn't work, you bring in just one or two witnesses and keep it as private as possible. And if that doesn't work, you increase the size of, of the audience. People in the church, by the way, never people outside the church as believers in Christ. We don't ever take our issues out there. And so we, we keep it as private and personal as possible. Social media lets us bypass all of that and just slander everybody online. So be careful 
about that conflict, a lot of the conflict that we have, we just don't need to have at all. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23 says it this way. This may be the most ignored passage in all the Bible. Do not have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Now, two things you want to notice very quickly from that passage. One, it says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Now, one of the challenges that you and I have is that we automatically label everybody else's argument as stupid and foolish and our arguments as necessary and brilliant. <laughs> so in our marriage, we're the same way, are we not? Now, Terry's not here, so I, I, I can say what I want. Bless her heart. So we can say what we want. We, 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 can, we, can, we can say in our marriage things that are toxic, ungodly, and foolish and stupid, according to the Apostle Paul, is writing young Timothy here. But we don't think it's stupid. We think their argument is stupid. But Paul says, no, the truth is, a lot of our arguments are that. Both sides, stupid and foolish. And he says, he says they produce quarrels. That's how you know if it's a stupid and foolish argument. It produces quarrels. And then secondly, he says, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. It's not an option. He didn't say, look, I know you're a big, you're a big fighter, but it's best you can. Don't do it. He says, don't do it. Don't quarrel. You're God's servant. Don't quarrel. And then he says this, instead, did you catch that in verse 24? The word instead, which means stop doing this, take this toxic element out of your relationships, and then I want you instead to replace it with this. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach and not resentful. Now, the word kind is hard enough. It's the everyone that's really hard. <laughs> you know, most people, no matter how hateful they are, they can be kind to somebody. It's being kind to everyone that is the challenge. So there's a basic truth in relationships. Listen closely. Young people, listen to me closely. Here's the basic truth in relationships all of your life, all relationships. Often, even when you're right, you're wrong. <laughs> I've learned that in marriage. Even when you're right, you're wrong. The Pharisees may have theologically been right about some things, but they were wrong because their hearts were in the wrong place. What good does it do for me to be right in an argument with my children or my spouse if my right attitude is not righteous at all, but arrogant and self-centered and cruel and angry and mean? Even if you're right, you can still be wrong. So the best arguments, the best arguments are the ones you never have. One survey I read said the biggest source of conflict in marriage in that article isn't a thing like money or chores, it's attitude. It's not what you say in the midst of your conflict, it's how you say it. It is the heart behind your conflict that exposes it for what it is. It's the attitude that we're to, to have. You know what attitude is, right? When I was a little boy, my mother would scold me because sometimes I was bad. And right in the middle of her scolding, I can see her doing this, she might stop me, point right in my face and say, 
I don't like your attitude. I'm thinking, what? I didn't say anything. She could tell by my countenance. My mom was really good at that. She could tell by my countenance that I was having a wrong attitude. Well, I've been married for 25 years now, and my wife, Cherry, has developed the same ability my mother had. <laughs> she can tell when we're in a disagreement by my countenance that my heart is in the wrong place. So as much as you can, replace conflict with peace. Secondly, replace wrong with reconciliation. Replace wrong with reconciliation. Look with me in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23. This is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this about relationships, our relationship with God and with others. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Now, it tells us two things, and I always mention this when I read this passage to you. You, you can't help but to notice, and we're going to see this in another passage, your relationship with God, young people, your relationship with God is directly connected to your relationship with other people and vice versa. And if you have a bad relationship with other people, it affects your relationship with God. In this case, your worship to God. And Jesus, Jesus is a part of eternal God. He's saying this. He says, look, it's great. You've got a gift at the altar. You're worshiping God. You're doing your thing. You're giving to God. Here's what I'd like you to do. Before you do that gift, good thing, nothing wrong with it. But before you do that, why don't you leave it right there? It'll, it'll be there. Go and reconcile with your brother who has something against you. Once you've reconciled, come and give your gift. First of all, there's something about worshiping God in a clear, in a clear conscience that just seems more powerful. Have you ever noticed that? If you're sitting there right now and you've got all of this junk in your life and your relationships, and you said some things, you've done some things that you regret, it's a mess, and it may be on the, in the car on the way here. I don't know. Maybe it was in the parking lot. Maybe it's fresh, or maybe it's years old. Jesus is saying, you deal with these, and, and as best you can, with a clear conscience. You try to work it out, and then come to me and give me your gift. The goal is to be reconciled. It's not to be the one who's right. It's to be reconciled. It's not to hurt people, it's to be reconciled. Often we're willing to talk, but only for the purpose of getting our way. We seek to win a victory, especially men. Men, we like to win the argument. I like it. <laughs> we like to prove the other person is wrong, but the, person, uh, the, the purpose of our conflict ought to be to reconcile. So we're going down the highway on the interstate. This is a hypothetical. Let's leave it at that. And my wife says, uh, our exit is coming up next. And I say, no. I, uh, I've lived here for many years. Our exit is the next one after that. She says, no, our exit's coming up next. And I say, no, it's the one after that. She says, no, it's coming up next. And I say, no, it's the one after that. Since I'm driving, I pass the exit. And there's this moment. 
when you realize, hypothetically, that <laughs> she was right and I missed the exit. Now, there's that moment she realizes that I realize it, hypothetically, and she's faced with a dilemma. She can be filled with the Holy Spirit of God and be gracious and say nothing, or the devil can swoop into the car and she can throw that in my face. Now, it doesn't do us any good. We are where we are, and we're going to have to take the next exit and come back, whether anything is said or not. And I'm fully aware now that I've messed up. That, that, that hypothetical scenario has only happened a couple of thousand times. <laughs> but you know, you know what I'm talking about in relationships? This, this is what God would want you and I to do as best we can. Replace wrong with reconciliation. Be sitting there thinking about not retribution, but reconciliation. How can I do this in a way that will not harm our relationship and that works both ways sometimes a couple starts out trying to resolve a problem but one insult leads to another and the other returns an insult and soon the goal seems to be how we can hurt one another and who can hurt the other the most Romans chapter 12 our passage for today verse 17 says do not repay anyone evil for evil, don't be overcome by evil, but, and here's the but, the replacement, overcome evil with good. He doesn't just say be neutral. He says overcome evil with good. Replace that evil with good. So replace conflict with peace. Replace wrong with reconciliation. And third, replace bitterness with forgiveness. Replace bitterness with forgiveness. Replace conflict with peace. Wrong with reconciliation and bitterness with forgiveness. In Mark chapter 11, verse 25, now he shows the other side of the coin. He says, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Again, we see how our relationship with others is connected to our relationship with God. In fact, specifically in this passage, he says... If you have an unforgiving heart, why would you and I think that God will forgive us? In fact, he says point blank, God will not forgive your sins if you and I hold unforgiveness in our hearts toward other people. Now the question is, and only you can answer this, it's rhetorical, don't answer, but only you can answer to this, are you harboring unforgiveness toward others right now? Because if you are, it is directly hindering your forgiveness from God the Father. So you might want to deal with that. That's what he's saying. Secondly, you notice in this passage, because it's you, you're, you're the one that's offended, not the other person like a while ago. You're the person that's offended. He doesn't say, if you're offended by someone, you go to the house, you know, spew it all over them, tell everybody on social media or whatever, and it's their job to apologize. He doesn't say any of that. He skips all that. He says, if you have an issue with somebody, what do you do? You forgive them. That's hard. Gee, I wonder if Jesus knew that it was that hard when he said it. Hmm. Yes, he did. That's why he died on the cross. You don't think that you think your forgiveness is hard? You, 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 you weren't crucified. 
I wasn't crucified. He was for the very purpose of forgiving our sins that we didn't deserve to be forgiven for. So forgive. So when you stand praying, if you hold anything against someone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. During the 94th Academy Awards a year and a half ago, comedian Chris Rock made a joke about Will Smith's wife. Now, don't recommend it, even for a comedian. I would not insult somebody's wife if that somebody is sitting right there, especially. I went, uh, hopefully I wouldn't insult somebody's wife anyway, but not if they're there. Come on, Chris. Well, Will Smith didn't like that. So Will Smith, being the big Academy Award winner of the night, as you know, got up, walked up on the stage and slapped Chris Rock in the face. Well, there was a lot of backlash from that because that's legally assault. He could go to prison for that. Now, Chris Rock graciously decided not to press charges, as you know. But while he refused to press charges, that's not the same as forgiveness. Will Smith, over the next several weeks, apologized publicly and profusely to Chris Rock. And Chris Rock, to this very day, has not publicly forgiven him. Now, here's the thing, as messed up as that was for Will, and I always say this, it's, it's one cabillionaire who slapped another cabillionaire because the third cabillionaire was the wife of the first cabillionaire. I mean, they're, these, are, these are rich people, and so they have rich people problems. But the truth is, the truth is, Chris Rock, even though he was the one that was wrong, he's the one that's carrying the weight around right now. Um... Will Smith apologized, and he seemed pretty sincere in that apology, but Chris Rock, he's got to carry that. And he can say it's, it's the fault of the other one, and he's right, but he still is the one that's carrying it around. I would really love to see him walk up to Will Smith in a restaurant or somewhere, put his arm around him and say, brother, I forgive you. For his sake, Will Smith is moving on, but Chris Rock is still carrying that. And so... Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but good for good. When you stand praying, forgive, forgive. You got to let it go. There's a newspaper columnist and minister, George Crane, many years ago, tells of a famous story now, and I'm sure you may have heard it, of a wife who came into his office full of hatred toward her husband, well-founded. She says, I do not only want to get rid of him, I want to get even. She was that mad. She says, before I divorce him, I want to hurt him as much as he has hurt me. Now, that's, that's pretty bad when you get to that point. But that's what she said to him. Before I divorce him, just divorcing wasn't good enough. Before I divorce him, she said, I want to hurt him as much as he's hurt me. Dr. Crane suggested an ingenious plan. He said, go home and act as if you really love your husband. Tell him how much he means to you. Praise him for every decent trait. Go out of your way to be as kind, as considerate, and as generous as possible. Spare no efforts to please him, to enjoy him. Make him believe you love him. After you've convinced him of your undying love and that you cannot live without him, then drop the bomb. Tell him that you're getting a divorce. That'll really hurt him. That's an insidious plan, is it not? 
With revenge in her eyes, she smiled and exclaimed, beautiful, beautiful, will he ever be surprised? And she did it with enthusiasm, acting as if she really loved him. For two months, she showed love, kindness, listening, giving, reinforcing, and sharing. When she didn't return, Dr. Crane called and said, are you ready now to go through with the divorce? Divorce, she exclaimed, never. I discovered I really do love him. Her actions had changed her feelings and changed his. Motion resulted in emotion. The ability to love is established not so much by fervent promise, but often repeated deeds. She lived out her love to him and realized and remembered she did love him. So replace conflict with peace. Replace wrong with reconciliation. Replace bitterness with forgiveness. And lastly, replace pride with love. Replace pride with love. Maybe the most difficult one to do. Because a lot of people, a lot of us, and myself included, often we don't identify our pride as pride. We think our pride is righteousness when really it's just pride. And then a lot of times we underestimate the depth of what love is and what it means. First Corinthians, and there's so many verses I could give you, but 1 Corinthians 16, 14, I love it just because it's so direct and brief. Do everything in love. Not some things, most things, but everything. That is extraordinarily difficult to do, is it not? In every relationship, do everything in love. When I think about the relationships with me that are the closest and most dear in my life, I immediately think of that verse. My grandmother, my mother, my parents, my, my wife. This verse is to define the, the, the relationships in your life that matter most. And to, to the extent that you infuse that verse into your relationships, you're gonna have better relationships. So re replace pride with love. love. Love is concern for the well-being of others. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love is not proud. It is not uh, self-seeking. It keeps no record of wrongs. A common and a wrong belief that sometimes you just can't be loving is not found in the Bible. Ever. 26 years ago, after I met Cherry, I was on a mission trip in Hong Kong. I came back, no one knew. I didn't quite know how to approach it at my church. It was a previous congregation, not, not this church. And so I decided to tell one of the ladies in the church. Now, the reason is, and I know I've shared this probably over the years, but I lived in an all-white town in an all-white church and no one at that church had ever heard of a pastor in an interracial relationship or interracial marriage. They just never heard of that. They didn't get out much, and so they just weren't exposed. This is way back in the 90s, you know, back in the little house on the prairie days. <laughs> and I knew it was going to jolt them a little bit. My wife is Filipino. And so I decided to uh, start with the one that I was closest to in the church. There was an elderly lady there, and I was very young. I was 34. And she was, she was uh, late 70s, early 80s. Her name was Christine. We called her Mom Christine. So I went to Mom Christine because she was like a second mom to me. She was my best friend in the church, my biggest supporter. And I went to her and sitting in her home one day, I'll never forget, I said to her, 
Mom Christine, I, I met someone, and she's wonderful. I met her when I was on a mission trip in Hong Kong, and she's never been here. She's Filipino. And I will never forget Christine's response to me. She shook her head, and she said, Lee, no, no, no. That was her response. She was horrified at the thought that I would marry someone that was not white. She thought it would end my career. She thought it would be an embarrassment to the church. And the church felt the same way, by the way. But I remember her saying that, no, no. So I told Cherry, we were riding back and forth and calling from time to time. She didn't own a computer. Christine didn't own a computer either. I had a computer, but I couldn't contact either one of them with a computer, again, back in the old days. And so I, I told Cherry and gave her her address, and Cherry wrote her a brief letter. And Christine uh, was smitten by that letter. You know, Cherry, just sweet as could be, 22 years old, just this wonderful, godly young woman. So Christine wrote her back a little letter, and the letters became more frequent and more lengthy, and they became best friends. All of that prejudice and racism that she grew up with melted away very quickly as she fell in love with Cherry. So we got married, and in our, our wedding, because at the time, there, Cherry's family couldn't be here. Floor wasn't here yet. It would be some years before she came here. And so there was no one, not one person on her side of the, uh, of the sanctuary that was in her family. So Mom Christine walked Cherry down the aisle. Because it changed her. Love is extraordinarily powerful. Now, she's in heaven now. She won't mind me uh, sharing that with you. And she would be the first to confess that she had a lot of prejudice that she had to overcome. But she came, became Cherry's most dear friend. The very person who looked at me and said, no, no and horrified. Always remember, love is the only hope of our relationships. Love is the only hope of your relationships. And all that you do, whatever happens, always remember. Pray with me. Father, we acknowledge to you this morning that sometimes we mess up our relationships. We we do things and we say things and we don't realize how toxic they are. We all do it. We're all guilty. Now, some are extremely toxic comments and responses and we throw things in each other's face and we do that with our kids and our parents and our spouses and our coworkers and everybody around us. We just say things with a heart and an attitude that we should not have as believers in Christ. But Father, your spirit empowers us like no one else on earth to go beyond what anybody else does. To embrace the love of Christ and to reflect it to those around us. And what we say and what we do and the tone of our voice and the expression in the, our eyes, our countenance, as we're in the midst of that conflict, that we can simply take a deep breath, relax, pause, and remember how Christ has forgiven us and how we are loved by you. And that you want us to
to reflect that love in our relationships. Help us to do that today. No one's looking around. As you're praying right now, does somebody come to your mind? A strained relationship that you have, a lot of water under the bridge, a lot of hurt feelings, repressed anger. First of all, if they've wronged you, I challenge you in the name of Jesus right now to forgive them. Not just to push it a little deeper, but legitimately forgive them. And, and I get it, they may not deserve it. Bible never talks about that. It just says forgive them anyway. You and I don't deserve forgiveness from Christ, and yet he has forgiven us anyway. Forgive them. You can do it. Let it go. Now, it may be just bad habits with those that you love. And you don't realize how toxic your words and your tone is. And the Holy Spirit is convicting you. And you know you can, you can refine that. You can replace that with kind, gentle, loving words. You can do that. And it may be small things. It may be that you have pretty healthy relationships most of the time. It's just this word or that incident or that subject or that place. And you just seem to get stuck. And you say things that are frustrating and unkind. Let God refine you today. Will you do that? As we pray. Maybe you want to come and get on your knees and say, God, I want to pray for this, this friend, this relative, this person. Help me to forgive them. Or it may be another relationship that's good. And you say, God, help me to make it healthy as much as I can in the name of Jesus through your spirit. Help me with this relationship. It's stuck. Maybe God is calling you to give your life to Jesus this morning and to follow him. He loves you. He died for you. And you want to surrender your life to Christ. Or God is calling you or your family to join with this fellowship. If God is leading right now, this invitation is for you. Here's your opportunity right here and now. Provided by God. Will you respond? As we're praying, no one's looking around. Would you all stand? And as you stand, as you continue to pray right now, you come.